I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hey, what's up there, Surf Splendor listeners? Thanks for joining us. Bringing you another bonus episode of Surf News with Scott Bass in between our regularly scheduled programs. Um, but I was talking to a friend this past weekend and the podcast came up and he was saying, he's like, yeah, I really liked the uh, Chris Cote episode and I listened to the Eric Howell one. And I liked the Tom Parrish one, but um, I haven't heard anything for a while, you know, or have you done anything recently? And I was like, dude, this is why you subscribe. If you're on iTunes or Stitcher, click the subscribe button to ensure that all future episodes are downloaded. Um, they'll automatically get downloaded to your device, whether it's your phone or your computer or wherever you are logged on, they'll automatically download for you. So make sure to do that and you'll never miss another episode. Um, you can of course listen on our website and everything is archived there and you can actually download the audio file. I don't know why you'd want to, but you can do that there too. So um, everything's there, but it's just easier to click the subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts. So please do that. And um, as always, you know, if you like what you're hearing, if you like a particular episode, share it with a friend. That's the only way that we know how to grow the show. I mean, we can pay for advertising and go different routes, but I think honestly, let's do it organically. If you like surfing, that's great. If you like podcasts, then I think this is kind of the perfect thing for you. So um, thanks for tuning in to this episode. Um, the regularly scheduled program will launch on Monday. Um, and I've got basically three or four things that are halfway completed, different um, episodes that are halfway completed. And um, I think ultimately the one that's going to that's going to come out Monday is an interview that I did recently with Robert August. So that's really cool. He shared a little bit about, um, the endless summer, of course, but then also about how he got into shaping boards and even further back, um, how his father had a relationship with Duke Kahanamoku, um, back before Robert was even born. So really cool storytelling from Robert. And um, there's some other stuff in that episode too that you won't want to miss. So that's Monday. But for now, we've got Surf News with Scott Bass. Uh, enjoy the show and I will close it out at the end. Thanks for listening. Down the line, Surf Talk Radio. Scott Bass joined with my friend David Lee Scales from Surf Splendor Podcast. That's right. Dot com. Got it right this time. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, man. How Thanks. are you? I'm good. I'm actually really good. How are you? You recover after the weekend yet? Yeah, we had the big boardroom show and I'm basically recovered and I caught some fun waves this morning. And uh, Yeah, where'd you end up? Uh, Seaside Reef, little peelers, sandbar, northwest windswell. Pretty fun. Cool. Yeah. Nice. I... How's my coffee breath? <laughs> I haven't caught it yet, actually. 
Tight quarters in the studio. <laughs> By the way, should we mention our new studio? Yes, we should. Yeah, I think it's awesome. Yeah, we are broadcasting from the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center library slash conference room. And uh, if you haven't had a chance to check out what they call Shack, which is the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center in San Clemente, uh, do yourself a favor and check it out. It's new to me. Last um, podcast that we recorded together was the first time that I had been in here, but it's amazing. It's a, it's a museum, essentially, but um, the quantity of historic surfboards is mind-boggling. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah the website, right. I went on their website. It's really good, too. It's really interactive and um, gives like a lot of detail on each board and a cool way of viewing it, too. So definitely check that out. Yeah, they have, um, I'm actually on the board of directors here. Oh, okay. And uh, we have the largest collection of photography in the world. Like the amount of photographs that we have that's available online, people don't realize it, and we need to do a better job of marketing it. But um, Steve Wilkins over there spends all day, every day, scanning images and putting images in. And obviously we've got tons of what they call surf paper, which is books and magazines and stuff, and the surfboards you mentioned. And uh, they have a great collection of oral history videos that they've, shot of um, legends, you know, and uh, it's just really, it's the Smithsonian. And in fact, we have just, um, we're in the process of getting like Smithsonian accreditation. Really? Yeah. So That's we're huge. pretty excited about that. Yeah. So we consider ourselves the Smithsonian of the surf world. Do um, people donate to it or is there a fund to set up for purchasing items or how does it work? Oh yeah. No, no. We don't really sell anything. Um, well, or no, but purchase rather than sell. Um, like to add to the collection. Oh, you mean would we purchase something from you? Yeah. Yeah, most of the stuff is donated. We don't do okay. a lot of acquisition, you know. Um, yeah. It's all donations. Cool. Yeah. It's, all, it's very impressive. Yeah, it's a cool place. Shack. Check it out. Shack. Surfing Heritage. Do you know what the website is? I want to say it's surfingheritage.org. Okay. Yeah, surfingheritage.org. In fact, I know that's it. So, okay, cool. Yeah. Awesome. So, what's the date today? It is October 10th. Yep. And um, I don't know, it might, been a, might, might have been two or three weeks since we did our last show. So, I, I reached out, obviously, um, just before you uh, did the boardroom show in Orange County. I think it was the day or two before. Happened to be when the Quick Pro France ended. So, bad timing for you because your plate was full. But I actually hosted um, a show anyways, and I got Chad Wells to co-host with me. Oh, great. So that was pretty interesting. I bet. Yeah. So Chad, Chad obviously um, worked for Quicksilver for quite a while. And, um, and so the event was sponsored by Quicksilver. And Chad had worked as um, the surf team manager. And he had worked with Kelly Slater and Dane Reynolds and all the main guys and a lot of the young kids around Huntington Beach. But um, he was let go from the company for something that was pretty controversial that was based off of social media, something that happened on social media. And you can't just leave it out there, dude. You got to tell us, David. I know what happened. You know what happened. I think you everybody, everybody knows what Chad happened. Chad got let go because he said some stuff about the Roxy Pro video with Steph Gilmore. Right. And he was, he, there was one or two phrases, and I don't even remember what they were, but it was something about, and I, you know, I'd hate to butcher it or get him in more trouble, but whatever it was, it was um, off color, according to some people. It was certainly off color, and but it was on his personal Facebook page, you know, and the whole thing got kind of blown out of proportion, and um, 
there was no reprimand. He got the sense that he was the fall guy, kind of. For sure. Yeah. They had to make a big stand, and so um, they let him go from the company. But at any rate, there was some controversy that transpired at the Quick Pro, and so I was happy to have Chad come in and give his kind of unique insight into that because he knows the guys, and he's also worked with the company, and then he was let go for something that was not all that different, you know? So it was pretty interesting. Yeah, and he's a, I've interviewed Chad before. He's a great interview, and... Um... You know, I hope he, you know, lands on his feet and yeah. gets, gets going and stuff. Yeah, he will, for sure. So, um, did you want to recap that that event at all? I know um, since you and I didn't get a chance to talk about it, did you get to watch it I do all? want to recap it, but some of those things are on our list of okay. things to go through. So, I'd, sure. I'd hate to, like... Jump ahead. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so... Um, okay, great. You know, what we do know is that Mick Vanning won the event. We do, right? yeah. And, and from a world title standpoint... As we are in the middle of the Portugal event now, Mick's in a pretty solid place. Yeah. Although in round two. Right. So. Round two against a wild card. Um. <laughs> that, that's sort of going to lead right into uh, what we're talking about here now, which is this concept of, of uh, well, again, I don't want to jump the okay. ship. Do you wanna, okay. How do you want to do this, David? So, do you wanna... so let's backtrack. Um, right. Mick beat uh, Gabriel Medina in the final of the Quick Pro. Did you get a chance to watch the final? I do. I've got some information here on it. Okay, what are your thoughts on it? Do you want me to? Do you want me so, to go into this? Well, here's I didn't. Let I, me let me do my thing and you tell yeah, me what you think. Go for it. Go Mick for it. versus Medina in the final, right, David? Mick Fanning gave Medina. They surfed the finals of this event and gave Medina took to the air as he was doing even in the semifinals as that wind went onshore, performing maneuvers. In my mind, that only a handful of the surfers on tour can do at will. Mick Fanning, not one of them. And Mick surfed solidly with powerful rail gouging turns and blowing tails and certainly looked um, as on point as Mick Fanning can look. He surfed great. But many people are concerned that the judging, uh, the progressive surfing that Gabe Medina was doing um, wasn't rewarded by the judges. And um, there were some, even Shea Lopez, who suggested, hey, this is 2013, not 1999. You truly saw two different, you know, styles of surfing. And you saw new school, I guess, for lack of a better phrase. And you saw, I guess, I don't want to say old school, but Mick Fanning surfing hard, you know, really, really solidly. My question to you, David, are we going backwards? First of all, I like your new energy for this, this podcast. Coffee. <laughs> <laughs> you came in hot with that topic, dude. Uh, but it's good. I'm glad you prepared. Um, so... Say the, the last question again. Do you think we're going backwards? Are the judges not scoring progressive surfing enough? Was that final? So Does it feel like we went back to 1999? I read that article from Shea Lopez. My answer is no. I do not feel like we're going backwards. I think um, it's a... Doing air... Like judging aerials highly is a step backwards. We did that for a couple of years. I think we've pushed past that now. And the way that the judges scored that heat I thought was fair. And that is Mick surfed really in the critical part of the wave every time, drawing off the bottom with a lot of power, drawing right into the most vertical section of the wave and slicing like through that, imposing his will on the wave, never, um, never skating through sections. You know, it's just rail to rail to rail to rail. And even if it's a foam climb, it's a vertical vertical foam climb with a ton of energy and a ton of speed and then whipping through the foam climb into his next turn. That's something that very few surfers can do and I would argue wasn't being done in 1999 as Shea Lopez said it was. 
Um, I understand his point, but I think he's overlooking some of the nuance of mixed surfing by saying that. I think that, on the other hand, it would be nice if he did a couple big air revs like, like Gabriel's doing, but Gabe is also skating through sections. Gabe has his eye down the line at a section. He's racing to get there, doing a big air, and he might do a cutback in between maneuvers, but it isn't that same live in the moment, live in every single second and absorb every single ounce of energy from the wave and use use all of it. You know what I mean? There's a little bit more of like off the gas pedal, on the gas pedal. And so I personally feel like that's how the judges have defined their criteria. And I think that they've stuck to that by and large in scoring heats. Um, and I think they did, I mean, aside from other heats, cause we could pick apart others where they didn't, but in this heat in particular, seen all those air reverses a million times. Mick was just on point, surfed the criteria to a T. That's why I won the heat. Well, I don't think I could have said that any better. I think you well, nailed thanks. it. That, 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 Is that really sums it up in a really good way because the main thing that I have against what Medina was doing was what you mentioned, and I'm not going to reiterate it, but my gut feeling is that he was he had one thing in mind, and that's find that section where I can bust in air. And really, is that truly surfing, or is that just going out to bust airs? And, you know, I, Mick surfed so solidly, and some of the things that you said, again, I don't want to reiterate it. I think that, um, I think you nailed it, and well, I don't think that we're going backwards. Okay, that was my point, too. Aside from what I said, when you watched the heat, did you feel like we were going backwards, or that Gabe should have won? No, but I did watch it knowing that there was going to be controversy. Um, and and somebody should listen to what you just said. Anybody that has a problem with the way that heat was scored, including Shea Lopez, and really think about that because the main thing against Gabe is that he is just running down the line, missing sections, and all of his focus is on that air section. And if that's progressive surfing, you know, maybe, you know, I don't know. Maybe that's not progressive surfing. So aerials... Are, can be progressive and they can be super critical in critical parts of the wave. But when you're surfing a beach break that has flat spots and the way that he was doing them weren't that critical. You know, if you were surfing to uh, pipeline and you threw a massive air on a barreling section, that's intensely critical. We've never seen it before, that'd be something. But what he was doing there was, um, we've seen it a million times before and it's just not that critical. You know, it's soft landings and it's not that hard to do for that level of surfer. So um, I felt good about the decision. Yeah, critical is like um, Kelly's aerial in New York or, right. or Kelly's aerial at Bells. Completely. And another thing that I think is going to start to happen is coaches are going to tell their guys, look, first turn off the bottom straight into a massive aerial. Now you're going to get a score. But if you're like taking off, pumping, kind of, sitting back on your fins, waiting for the section and the speed, and then you see that thing down at the end and you do your aerial there. That's just, in my mind, I, I think the judges are going to go, you know what, you, you lost a lot of scoring potential. Right. And it, I think it depends on where they're surfing too, because some of, I remember watching some of Joel's waves in France, and he wouldn't do an air off the first section, but he just blows the back out of the wave kind of in a top turn, you know? And it's not necessarily fins over the top of the wave. It's just a hooking gouge that has a lot of torque in it and a lot of kind of release, even though it's in the wave. And that's more impressive 
I sense that you're getting to our next topic. Uh-oh. And I want to go there. Parco pushed in France in yeah. the same event. Joel Parkinson and Mark Lacamoire, they battled in round two, David, during the Quicksilver Pro in France. Came down to the wire. Lacamoire caught a right-hander, and he did three pretty vertical tail-blowing hits in the top section of the wave. Two or three cutbacks was scored an 8.2. Right behind him, Parco caught one and did two big turns like the ones you're talking about and a cutback and was scored an 8-5. And Parco went on to win that heat. David, was Parco pushed? I don't know that there was an intentional push. I would hesitate to say that, but he was overscored for that wave without a doubt. You should run for office. You're <laughs> smooth, dude. You kidding he, me? He, the two turns that you're talking about, um, the first two turns that Parco did on that wave, I don't think were the blow out the back type of turns. I thought they were like a bar of soap in a bathtub, kind of like yeah. beautiful. Like The first one was a soft kind of cut yeah. and a beautiful... Yeah. Beautiful cut. Back. It's a wrap. Right. And it looks it cool. Was. Yes. But again, the judge's criteria is a, is contrary to that. It's about being in the critical part of the wave, in the vertical part of the wave, and that's what Lacomere did. So in the discussion I had with Chad, I was explaining like, I try to give the judges the benefit of the doubt and um, rewatch it and understand how they arrived at their decision. Even if I don't agree with it, how did they get there? Does this align with their criteria? Yeah, it kind of does. I disagree with it, but I get it. That was one heat and one exchange in particular that I could not reconcile. You know, it was like, no matter how you slice this, Lacomere, he, he had two better waves because there was a left earlier that was better than Joel's previous right. And um, it just, there's no way to really so how do get you, through that. So, so he was overscored, but not pushed. This sense, this conspiracy theory that's out there on the internet, that specifically in round two, when there's guys that are in the world title hunt, that the, the ASP or the judges or whoever it is, either subconsciously or consciously moves these guys through for the betterment of the sport. You don't believe that to be the case. I didn't say I don't believe it. I'm saying I wouldn't make that accusation. I, it could be happening. I think that it's too hard to tease apart Everybody is a fan of surfing who's watching the event, including the judges. And I like Joel. I'm a fan of Joel. It's impossible to say whether or not I give him an extra half a point or an extra point in the scoreline based on that preconceived, you know, sentiment. Um, and anybody who says that they can divorce themselves from that sentiment is fooling. They're lying, you know, or they're, they're unaware of the power of that sentiment. So... Is there an unintentional adoration that they have that gets him extra points? Yeah, almost undeniably. Are they intentionally saying, hey man, advertisers' dollars are at stake for future events if Joel's not a world title contender, therefore add an, add an extra one to that score. You know what I mean? That's yeah. something else. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Well, that would be fraudulent. And But that's um, what we're talking about. Right, I know? agree. Yeah. That's fraud. And... Um, you know, I think my thoughts on our, are sort of from a 30,000 foot level. Okay. This has happened before. It's going to happen again. Whether or not um, there's malice and there's some forethought and it's specific intent to do this, I simply don't know. I sort of doubt it. I do too. I, I just don't think that they're, they're that stupid. Yeah. You know, that would be stupid. You know what I mean? And, and I just don't think they're, you know, they're smarter than that. Well, there's an amazing story in an, under, an underdog 
taking out a world champ. And that's equally marketable, especially considering that the underdog was sponsored by the event sponsor. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like if you were to sit down in a boardroom and try to design what the better story is, that might be a better story and more marketable. And, and so I would argue that with the conspiracy theorists, you know? Well, and that's a good point. And this is another great segue into the next story, which is um, the webcast announcers and everybody that watched it felt like Mark got ripped off. So there was an incredible, um, not incredible, that's, that's sort of hyperbole. There was an interesting article on the inertia called Anatomy of a Terrible Webcast. I sent you the link. I don't know if you read it. I had read it previously. But uh, it basically kind of went into the, the Duma and Jake Patterson of firing. So they commented on this heat and other heats and they bet money on this beers. heat. Beers. They bet beers, yeah, on this heat. And my question to you uh, is... Did the ASP do the right thing in letting go Duma and Snake based on their sort of questioning of the judges and their sort of fun, lighthearted uh, gambling? Absolutely not. They did not do the right thing. Number one, every other commentator in every other heat this year questions the judges' scores and tries to predict scores. The only thing they did different was jokingly bet beers on the scores, but they had done that in previous heats prior to that and they weren't let go for that. So I don't see what they did wrong at all. They're a little bit more irreverent and a little bit more um, comedic, I would argue as well. But to me, both those things were a nice addition to the webcast. I liked having them in the booth. And I was telling Chad, what a breath of fresh air from the Hurley Pro which was super vanilla and everybody's patting each other on the back the entire time. Um, they got in there and just kind of shook it up and made they more importantly than shaking it up. They showed enthusiasm, you know, like Jake, his enthusiasm for the sport is undeniable and he's screaming on the webcast and like, like, Hey, he's pumping down the line. He's going to do a big air, you know, and he's getting into it. And it's like, that's what surfing is. And guess what? Surfers drink beer too. And we're not like, like uh, promoting a brand of beer or anything that would be a conflict of interest, but they're making reference to the true kind of spirit of the sport and of the culture and the lifestyle. And I think that's really relatable. So trying to shut them down for, for touching that or tapping into that, I think is contrary to their end goal of getting more viewers. Well, this sort of led me into a conversation with Brad Gerlach about what really is sport. And, um, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that these two guys are basically going, the judges blew it. The judges didn't do a very good job. Right. This is a subjective judged sport. And if it's going to be subjectively judged, it, there needs to be a pretty solid criteria that everyone understands and goes by. And if the guys that are hired by you know, the web, yeah, the webcat, the company, the production company to do this, right. don't even know, um, you know, can't even be in line with what the judges are supposed to be doing. Then they are creating sort of a sense of why are we even going through this whole process? Right. You know what I mean? The idea that, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the judges are saying. You don't know what the judges are saying. This isn't what you and I are seeing. Then why are we even doing this? Like so there's this sense that um, if this is truly a sport, then the judging, the subjective judging, 
and the broadcasters need to be on the same level. And it doesn't mean they can't disagree, yeah. but for them to just go, who knows what's going on? Yeah. We don't have a clue. And we're the broad, if, if they don't know, and the judges don't know, and you and I as the viewers don't know, then why are we even going through this whole, mo what are we trying to do? Sell board shorts? Right. Yes, we are. Well, of course. So that's what I have an issue with it is that I don't mind. I love the irreverence. I love yeah, all of yeah, that. Yeah. I love the saltiness. But at some point, there needs to be, I don't know if the word is professionalism, but there needs to be something so that so that there's some validity to what we're all doing. Because if nobody knows, then it's like, where, why are we here? Well, in a sense, it's no different than NFL um, commentators saying that the ref made a bad call. And that happens regularly. And that happens in a lot of sports. So I think it's okay to have the difference, but I agree with you in that they're, they should all be um, coached on what are the, the judging or what is the judging criteria in advance so that we're all on the same page. My understanding is that they all have been and that they are on the same page and the judges are that far removed from what the public is witnessing and more importantly, the commentators who are former professional surfers, I would argue, are better at surfing than probably any of the judges, have more experience in the water, know what it's like and what's more critical. So in my eyes, and I think that's where the controversy is in the viewing public's eyes too, is that like, look, these ex-professional athletes think that was a better wave. I do too. I agree with them. Everybody else agrees with them. Why are these five people so different than the rest of the world? You know what I mean? Right. The which, five judges. Which sort of, and, and that's where I have a problem with it. Yeah. Is that, you know, why are we here? If, if, if for God's sakes, it's 2013, we, those two entities can't get on the same page, the broadcasters and the judges, then, you know, what is this, what, what are we doing? So a couple of interesting things I read online in um, people kind of giving their opinions about it was, what about the idea of just having the judges, they have like a microphone in the judge's booth or a camera in the judge's booth with audio and you can hear their discussion so that you know there's nobody sitting over their shoulder making an active push. You know, it's all just transparent. What would be the harm in making it transparent? Uh, I think there's some, I think the sense of anonymity is a good one. I think that they're anonymous, that they're, shielded that they're away that nobody's bugging them that they don't feel like people are listening to them i think there's power in that that they need that's that sense that there's like a separation from the public you know i think they need to realize that it's just them and the waves they're watching and the head judge and i think if you start to add some multimedia to that um, cameras or audio or whatever you know, I don't know. It's it's interesting. I'm not against it. I'm just I'm just throwing out some I don't some know. potential problem. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 
2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com slash surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's LinkedInjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. I I still don't know why they would need that anonymity. First of all, they're not anonymous because they publish their names. You know what I mean? But I understand what you're saying, though. Um, Eventually, somebody's going to get in trouble. Somebody's going to say something that's going to get them in trouble. Good. That happened to the commentators. They, they need to get in trouble. What about this? What about if the commentators, if we give the commentators judging ability as one of the judges? Because yeah, you were saying they're great, and I would agree with you that most of them can do a pretty good job of it. Yeah. What um, if you make them one of the five judges? Without, without anyone knowing. I mean, everyone knows, but... Yeah. You know, yeah, I'd have to wrap my brain around that one for a minute or two. I, I don't know how that would work. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. It's an interesting concept. But, yeah, I just don't think, um, to your original point, that they should have been fired from the commentary booth. You know, like, what they've done in there was no different than what everybody else has done in there. And how did that go down? Like, how does the firing happen? So, and what stab- is, how, how can... St- how can you? It would be hard to fire Snake. He's a pretty. I know. He's a pretty like wily guy. Like I imagine he might have, you know, cold cocked somebody. Or... Well, um, Stab Magazine posted. I read it in our in my last um, episode with Chad. But Stab Magazine posted the. Um, they broke the news essentially the yeah. day after it yeah. happened, and they had originally had a line in their um, in their article that said Kelly Slater sent the email to Renato. Hickle, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, saying that the webcat was quote webcast. Actually, not the webcast, but Jake Patterson and Duma specifically are amateurish, quote unquote. And um, then Renato sent an email to the people at Quicksilver saying, you know, um, that they basically need to go. Like they're betting beers. This is highly unprofessional. Um, it's a disgrace to the sport or something to that effect. Well, then Stab posted Jake Patterson's email back to Renato. I saw that. Saying, I take offense to you saying that. I have more passion for this sport than anybody. Um, so that was all, I thought that was all really um, helpful in understanding the situation and being able to see these guys and assuming it's true and not taken out of context, you know. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's a, It's ugly. <laughs> that moves us on to our next yeah. topic. Um, Dave Wassel and the Knifegate in Tahiti. In the spring of this year, Dave Wassel went to Tahiti. There was a big swell. Um, he surfed a spot called Sapunas, and um, he was towing in. It was massive. 
and he was towing in very deep off of the reef. And um, at the end bowl, there's a bunch of locals that surf there all the time, most of them boogie boarders. And um, apparently they waited their turn and they waited their turn and eventually the locals got fed up and um, just dropped in on Dave. And this photograph and the video of Dave uh, made the internet rounds. And um, eventually uh, Surfing Magazine said, hey Dave, let's do a little video interview and you can kind of explain the wave and explain the boogie boarder dropping in on you and explain, you know, just let's talk about it. And so they did that shot. And interestingly enough, they did it while Dave was presumably filleting a, a fish. So he had this knife sharpening thing going and the whole time he was sharpening this knife. And my question to you is this, Dave Wassel knife gate was the knife a setup, a part of the shot, or was it just a coincidence that they turned the camera on while he was doing that? Uh, I really, I think it was a coincidence. I think it's really suspicious that you would set the shot that way. Like, it, it does seem suspicious to me, but I really... Do you think there was a time when they said, hey, you know what, let's set the knife down, I'm doing an interview, and somebody said, no, 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 keep the knife there, it's kind of cool. Yes, that could could have been a moment, but so it was a part of the shot. Yeah, but was that person's intention keep the knife there so it scares the boogie boarders from ever dropping in on us again? I, I don't doubt. Know. I doubt that. I don't know. I think I've I've done video production stuff, and it's like, yeah, I want an interesting shot. This is an interesting shot, but I'm not trying to send a message right. to the body boarders. Um, so I don't know. What do, what did you think about? I that would one? I would agree with you. I, I just think that. They probably rolled up at the house and Dave was in the middle of filleting a fish and he's like, okay, come back, set up. I'm filleting this fish. Just bear with me while I do it. And they're like, oh, dude, let's just shoot it while you're doing it because that's kind of lifestyle. I think, did you say that video was produced by Surfer? Surfing. Surfing. Okay. Um, yeah, so I, I think they'd be putting themselves on the line by trying to send a message. And secondly, I don't know Wassel personally, but... Every time I've ever heard him and seen anything about him, I follow him on on Instagram and all that. He's super jovial and friendly and kind, and I would be surprised if he was trying to make a, you know, implicit threat towards a community of people. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with you. And I've actually interviewed him on this show, and he's a great interview. And you're absolutely right. Dave's the kind of guy that look if he's going to threaten you, he'll just threaten you. Right, <laughs> you know and it would have to be something really severe for him to do that. Yeah. yeah. So. But, but I bring that up because there was a lot, as you probably know, because you, you're, you follow the internet like I do, there was a lot of talk that um, in the Tahitian culture, the concept of talking to somebody with a knife in your hand is, is generally taboo. Yeah. Well, it was a mistake on his part. He didn't know that, you know, or he didn't think about that when they were setting up the shot. Or he thought maybe the video wouldn't go viral. You know, it's just like, oh, yeah, let's just shoot this thing. No big deal. Um to kind of elaborate on the storyline though, the kind of initial uh, video footage was really remarkable. Uh, the wave was huge. The bodyboarder like fell out of the sky, you know, and, and burned Dave on a wave that he wasn't gonna make ultimately. The bodyboarder was in position. Dave was way too deep, arguably. And the photos, they have a sequence um, shot of it too that's really cool. So the initial tone that came after that media was published was, Oh, look at shame on this bodyboarder for burning Wassel on a life-threatening wave. That was the initial tone. Well, the the bodyboarder, somebody went, I don't know who produced it, it was pretty well done, went out and made a 10-minute video interviewing the bodyboarder and the community of bodyboarders or the community of Tahitians 
about that spot and about how it's been overrun by toe-in surfers and the toe-in surfers don't take their turn. They can take off deeper, so they just take every single wave and they never let the locals get a wave. And so the tone flipped in the media landscape at that point to where there was sympathy for the Tahitians. Nobody knew the backstory previously, so they were shaming the bodyboarder. Yeah. The bodyboarder stood up and goes, hey guys, that's not really what happened. Here's the real deal. Do you know at which point the surfing magazine video came out? Was it in answer to that or was it previous to that? It was previous, yeah. Okay. The, the knife video was previous and... Um... And like you said, the whole thing sort of simmered down until the Surfing Magazine video came out. That came out, and then that somehow the kid, the boogie boarder kid, got wind of it, saw it, and goes, okay, we need to make a response. Yeah. And I, I think if the knife video came out after the boogie boarders video, that would be a different story. But the reality is, Dave Walsall got an amazing wave a few months ago. Surfing Magazine had shots of it, and they go, hey, let's do a video piece so that we could run it on our website. Yeah, it's the story behind the wave. Yeah, so they yeah. did that. And then the response video from the bodyboarders, I thought, was really touching and endearing, and it gave me a newfound appreciation for them. I was like, okay, cool, story's over. I'm sure Walsall's sad that they got shamed, you know? And then the knife gate thing, people looking at it in hindsight, I think it's just the media... Or the internet haters. It's the internet. It's the, the internet. internet stirring up controversy. Yeah, yeah. So, um, the next topic. Parco's Portugal sponge ride. Parco, during a free surf at Super Tubos, cuts off a local boogie boarder. Words were exchanged between Joel Parkinson and the local boogie boarder. This happened just the other day, maybe three the, or day, three or four days ago. The day before the round one. And he gets slapped by the boogie boarder. All caught on film. Should visiting pro surfers take the high road and let the locals be? I think it's the opposite. I think local surfers make way for the visiting pro surfers. Like, I surf lowers all the time throughout the year, and when the event shows up, Dude, I stay out of the water. I grab my video camera and sit on the beach because, the, number one, I'm a, such a big fan of the sport. I just want to watch them surf. But if you did surf at lowers instead of videoing, and you went and it was your turn, and you got cut off, how would you feel about that? Uh, honestly, I'm such a big fan, and I have such respect for Parco or whoever it is. I would stand behind him and watch him shred. You'd be like, cool, I got a story for my grandkids. I got yeah. cut off by Parco. <laughs> totally. And and even when it's when it's local guys at Huntington that burn me, yeah. I'm not slapping those guys either. Right. You know what right. I mean? Because it's not that important. Right. If it's a if you're taking off a back door in the middle of winter, things are on the line, maybe I'd be pissed about that. I wouldn't be out there in the first place. But right. Right. arguably I'd be pissed. Yeah. Hypothetically, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I got burned the other day at two foot mushy Huntington, you know what I mean? And it's yeah. like, I, the guy stared at me afterwards. I didn't say anything to him because it's like, dude, this isn't backdoor. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't care that much. Well, you're more mature than most. There's a sense of machismo, I think, in Portugal. And this spot um, is another one of those spots that's heavily uh, sort of, uh, I don't want to say infiltrated, but it's surfed by local boogie boarders. Um, super tubos. So apparently they wanted to make a statement. And uh, I guess they did. Parco was good enough and good-natured enough to, so, to sort of let it all slide and just go, ah, it happens, whatever. I only heard him in his post-heat interview after his round one uh, win. 
and the, the commentator asked him about it and then he just kind of talked about it a little bit. He didn't give all the detail you gave. Is there a video that exists online? There's not there? a video, but there's a photo sequence on Stab. Oh, there is? Yeah. I and there's that. a story on it, too. Oh, okay. you know? I got to go check yeah. that out. Yeah. Okay. It's pretty good. It shows the little open-handed slap to Parco. And... Did Parco give his two cents in the Stab article? Uh, no, no, not. I mean, it was more or less like PR spin, like, no yeah. big deal. It's all good. We figured it out. Move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think bravo to Parco for not knocking out the sponger, though, you know? I mean, not that I don't know what the sponger looked like or how that fight would have gone down, but it's like Parco took it, moved on, realized he has a world title on the line and he's a professional and he can't be getting into fights with random strangers. So bravo to him for moving on. I disagree on. with you, though. Okay. I think that the local surfers should, should be allowed to surf their spot. Like, I think that the... Pro surfers should take the high road, and if there's an opportunity to burn a local guy, you should just pull back and go, you know what, you go. Yeah, the burning him make is it's a pretty, little bit different. It's pretty brutal. Like if you see it on, when you see the sequence, you'll see that Parko was just a, like a snapper and was just going no matter yeah, what. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. That makes it a little bit different, I suppose. Yeah. Than just like taking all the waves, you know, or something like that. Now, understanding that perhaps hypothetically golf balls are a limited resource like waves this would suggest to you that if there's only so many golf balls at the driving range prior to the golf tournament the local golfer can come up and just start right or the pro could come up and just take those limited golf balls from the local guy and just start warming up because hey i've got a tournament or mid swing while the locals got his in the back swing park who just gets in there and chips it up <laughs> something like that yeah oh well Next topic, um, Orange County, California on October 5th, potentially the best day of 2013, certainly of the South Swell season. Did you get any good waves? Did you get tubed on that day, David? Uh, I actually have you to blame for that one, for <laughs> scheduling the boardroom show on the best day of 2013. So no, I did not. I put in a solid eight plus hours that day at the boardroom show. So uh, thanks very much for that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you're welcome. I'm, uh, I'm sorry you didn't. I, I too did not surf that weekend. So. so the night before I got home from work and um, it was pretty windy. And I live like two miles from the beach and I was just like, you know, I'm gonna take a little nap. So I sleep for 30 minutes, woke up, had an hour and a half of sunlight left and the wind just like switched completely and started blowing straight offshore. So I went down there and I got to surf for about an hour that afternoon, Friday afternoon. And it was super fun, super good. The swell wasn't as big as it was gonna be the next day, but I still got some fun ones that kind of took the sting out of missing the good day, you know? But um, it was also like kind of a straight south swell, like a lot of wall in the yeah, swell. Yeah, a, a little bit wally, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, so I don't think it was as good as it gets. The um, conditions were as good as it gets, and there was definitely a few corners that people got, but um, a lot of big closeouts probably as well. Yeah. The next day, um, actually I surfed the next morning, Sunday morning, and the wind kind of died, and it was still fun, you know? Yeah. But not, not the perfect combo swell that we all hope for in the fall. It'll come, though. Next topic, the Finn Project. Yeah. Tim Hogan's mission is to honor the Finn and its innovators as the defining variable in surfing's progression 
in a new documentary film. His Kickstarter campaign has just launched. David, is the Finn and all the stories that come from the Finn worthy of a documentary? Absolutely. I think so. I, I think the Finn is um, kind of under-discussed or under-appreciated in a lot of ways. I think with the companies like Futures and um, FCS, they've done a lot of marketing that kind of alludes to the uh, importance of Finn design, you know? And so they obviously sell a lot of various designs. But that's opened my eyes to the Finn a lot more than it ever was when I was just getting glass-ons on boards. And so I certainly have a newfound appreciation for the Finn. And um, it's evolved so much. It's evolved, obviously, as much as the surfboard has since the beginning of surfing. So why wouldn't... Yeah, definitely. It's time. Let's well, see it. Well, a couple things. It is worthy of a documentary, but with a caveat, and that is that... Look, the fin's an inanimate object. That would be like saying, you know, the coffee cup. Let's do a documentary on the coffee cup. It's changed over time as well. Um, what needs to happen in this documentary and what I'm confident that Tim will do is excavate the crazy stories behind it. Yeah. Now, I've, and I know that's what you meant. Now, um, one of the things that's interesting is that, first of all, fins are underutilized. Nothing will change the way your, your board rides more than a fin. And you and I know that 95% of the surfers put their fins on their board and they're more concerned about what wax they're going to use than the next time they will change their fins. Doesn't happen all that often and it should. Or they'll write off a $600 surfboard. Without trying something. Yeah, because yeah. they think it's not working well when a different set of fins really can make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Now there's a, what really I'm hoping and, I, and I've spoken with Tim about this is that he can excavate some of the crazy stories around these crazy characters that are so sort of fin-focused, if right. you will. And for instance, um, Mike Henson, at one point, probably on some sort of... Um, it could be... <laughs> maybe his mind was altered in some fashion. But he and some guys broke into SeaWorld and um, went to the dolphin pen and literally traced a true dolphin fin, a porpoise fin, onto some cardboard. No way. Yes. So that's the type of thing that I need to see in this documentary. I need to hear that story from Mike Henson in depth about that evening when they broke in and traced the dolphin fin. That's crazy. Yeah. Did you tell Tim that oh, yeah. story? Tim okay. knows to follow up on that one. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I agree. Like, that's what a documentary is. You know, documentary should have that, that type of story. Um, I talked to Tim at the boardroom show. Number one, did you know Tim prior? Just, or? just met him about, you know, two weeks ago. Okay. Yeah. So he was at the boardroom show. Um, and I went up and talked to him and chatted and I'm actually going to be interviewing him on Tuesday, like in depth, cause I'm doing a podcast episode about Finn design actually. Um, it wasn't related to his project at all. I had already started mapping it out and his story obviously fits in. So I think we're going to end the episode with just kind of a focus on what he's doing and hear kind of, um, you know, the Kickstarter thing alone is interesting to me just to like crowdfunding is interesting. Yeah. And I know that he's already got some money flowing in through it. So, um, 
So we'll see what happens. Yeah, you know, you can find out more. I, I want to say it's thefinproject.org. Okay. Thefinproject.org. And he does have a Kickstarter campaign. So if you can fund it a little bit, um, if you have some monies to give, please do. I have given some money and I never ask people to give unless I have also done so. So, Would, yeah. Do you know much about um, the history of fin design or like who are innovators Historical well, innovators. You know, in sort of to touch on it from, from a 30,000 foot level, there was the hot curl surfboard, which was the board that they put tons of V in pre-fin. And that was sort of the, the predecessor to the fin. Then there was Blake, Tom Blake, who created the fin. And from there, um, it gets a little wacky. You want to bring in Bob Simmons. You want to bring in, um, you know, this actually is points to why Tim should do this project. Because yeah. a lot of people... You know, I'm sort of lost as to where the fin goes from there, you know? Yeah, it's murky. Yeah. You know, and I think that, like, shapers have made their own adjustments along the way to their own designs. But I don't know any big names that were Well, like, I think what's interesting, and I'm sorry to interrupt, but no. it just came to me, is that the fin box is actually was... The guys looked deeper into the fin box than they did into actually the fin design. You know, that was a big deal. Like, how yeah. can we get this massive fin out of this board so we can ship these boards around? Right. And I know Hobie did some work into that. Tom Moray, I believe, developed one of the very first fin boxes. George Downing was putting fin boxes in wooden boards at Makaha in really? the 50s. And um, that's sort of a little side note, you know, that yeah. the actual design of the fin was just sort of like, okay, that's the design. Now, how do we make a really cool box? But there was always different designed fins in different boards. And so I'm wondering, was that just an aesthetic that the shaper decided on? Or was were people actively doing market research, you know, trying out a fin shape and going out and testing it and then trying out a different one? Certainly I don't Greeno, Greeno would be one that would do that kind of thing. And then okay. I think there was a lot of guys going, hey, this is the hot fin. And so everyone goes, okay, that's the hot fin. Let's make it, you right. know, and... and and that's the way it is today with surfboard design. It's like right. people want a little wider board. Okay, let's make a little wider board, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but there's so much for him to excavate, you know. Well, I think Tim's done a great job um, with, I guess, the way that that project developed was he's a photographer and he was just shooting. Uh, he was doing a series on surfboard fins. And um, those photos that I've seen have been turned out beautifully. You know, that's what drew me to the to the project was just... The visuals. The professional quality of those images, right? He professional such... quality, yeah. And like creative layout, you yeah. know? Like yeah. backlit on a white table and stuff. And um, so that's what drew me to it. And then when I went and talked to him and heard that it is more kind of uh, historical, the documentary anyways is going to be more historical, that definitely appeals to me. But that's what I've been doing too in preparation for this podcast that I'm doing. I think um, visuals are tremendously important for telling the story, but I also really like the podcast format for different reasons, you know? There's an intimacy to the storytelling that exists without visuals, and so um, I think I'll have a different angle on it than he will, but it'll yeah. certainly help him promote, you know, his sure. project, sure. upcoming project, so. Cameraman slays Kelly Slater during the WCT uh, recently, a couple days ago, round one of the Rip Curl Pro in Portugal. Kelly Slater lost his heat. And during the heat, uh, appeared to be interfered with by a water photographer. My question to you, did the water photographer cost Kelly the heat? I didn't see the heat, unfortunately. It's not okay. No, I know. <laughs> well, what, did let you me watch answer. it? I did. Well, okay, let me backtrack real sure. quick. 
The heat analyzer was not working. I'm pissed about that. That was ridiculous. There's conspiracy theories about that. Okay, so I I went, I stayed up. First of all, Portugal is a different time zone than California is. So I stayed up until two o'clock to watch multiple heats of round one and then uh, didn't make it to his heat. Woke up in the morning, pulled up the heat analyzer to watch and it wasn't functioning. I checked on my phone a few minutes before we started this and it looks like it's working. It is. Okay. Yeah. So that's why I missed it. That's yeah. my excuse. And my question, uh, my answer to the question is no. I don't believe that, that ultimately you, this wave didn't, um, wouldn't have mattered. You saw it? Yeah. Okay. I watched it this morning. Explain on the, it. On the heat analyst. Uh, you know, he, he drops in, he drives through a tube and it just kind of, the whole thing runs and pinches. He might've been able to doggy door it. You see the photographer, but from what I can tell, the photographer, you know, he was kind of at the top of the wave, outside of the wave, like you would see any other photographer. Did is It wasn't it, like he was down at the bottom and, and Kelly had to readjust his line or uh, anything like that. Now, Kelly, of course, probably has a different view of it because he was pissed off. And But I'm wondering if that was just more of a, if the photographer was a scapegoat to just what a frustrating heat Kelly was having. By the way, I thought, and I want you to go back and check this out, but I really feel like Kelly was underscored in that heat. Oh, right. They gave this Jacob kid an eight for a beautiful tube ride, a well-deserved eight. And then Kelly got one very similar, maybe not as deep, but as well-ridden, you know, hmm. with sections that he made and um, and was only scored a 3.83, I believe. What? Yeah. That's so a huge difference. Check that out. That's my answer. No, he, this wave in particular didn't affect his heat outcome, but I think that this judge's underscored Kelly Slater in that heat. Huh. Yeah, I'll definitely check that out. Um, so the argument was that the cameraman like chandeliered the section. Is that what they were saying? I guess that's what Kelly's saying. There, you know, there's not a lot of chatter about it other than, you know, um, sort of Kelly in the water kind of, he kicked the water photographer out of the water. Oh, he did. And then the commentators just kind of go, hmm, I don't know. It's hard to tell. Couldn't see. Kind of like what I just said to you. You know, like, I don't know. It didn't really look like it was a big deal. Yeah. You know, the other thought is, um, even if he didn't technically get in Kelly's way, he certainly could have provided a distraction to Kelly that Kelly otherwise would have been able to focus and make the wave. Maybe that's an argument, you know? Um, but they're always, like you said, they're always in the lineup. So that's just part of... Yeah, I sense that Kelly was just frustrated. Yeah. Um, let's see, I got one more for you. The Chunk of Foam Challenge. Yeah. Presented by U.S. Blanks. Um, was there too much foam? <laughs> Let's back up. Let's explain to people. Let's give them the backstory. Um, it was an eight foot by two foot wide by ten inches thick chunk of foam. The shapers had three hours to find a board within that chunk of foam. And one of the shapers didn't finish and all four of the shapers had to use all three hours and a big chunk, two, at least two hours of, of that time was spent just getting the blank to a place where they could actually draw the outline. Yeah, so Scott's referring to the boardroom show this past weekend. He sets up a number of shaping exhibits. One of them is this chunk of foam challenge, which is a competition doing what Scott just said. And um, yeah, I thought it, it was unbelievably labor intensive for those guys and I felt bad for them. Um, the whole exhibition is set up in kind of a fishbowl style shaping bay. So everybody can view from the outside, but yeah, they were sweating it out, just cutting through the foam for two hours to get to that workable spot. 
And uh, yeah, I think it was too much foam probably. Obviously um, these are things that you learn along the way so nobody would have known in advance. So there's no shame in that. But just like um, jet ski assistance in the competition, the surfing contest, that's there so that we can just watch good surfing. You know what I mean? We don't want to watch guys paddle out at J Bay forever. So maybe apply the same rule to this where it's like, we just want to see them shape a board, not necessarily saw through foam for two hours. That would be my only thought. Um, and, and yeah, those guys, by the time they actually got to the shaping portion, they were so exhausted and frustrated probably that we didn't get the best version of them there either, you know? So what was well, your... secretly, this is my way of getting back at the shapers of the world that, you know, that took six months to get me a surfboard. Right. <laughs> this is all a big ploy. It's <laughs> based on their based on their performances, though. How are you going to get anybody to sign up for it next year? <laughs> well, uh, of course, all kidding aside, you're right. It was too much foam. Yeah. And we're going to trim it down to like, say, five inches. So they will still have to find the rocker and all the important aspects yeah, of the board yeah, without yeah. that being put into the blank. And we'll eliminate sort of that labor intensive part of it. And uh, we're looking forward to doing it again. Yeah, it made for great visuals, though. I mean, it looked like it snowed a foot in there when I showed up, Yeah. you know, and so got some great photos out of it. And those photos, I think, are really worth um, checking out for people who are listening and want to see what we're talking about, because it is a really interesting exp uh exhibition you yeah know? so where are the photos photos are on facebook okay. uh the boardroom facebook site so boardroom show um if you just you know search facebook for the boardroom surfboard show there's a, like 80 photos on there it's really good yeah i thought they were really good the last one i thought that one was the last one i got one more for you though that's important matt calvani wins the terry martin tribute to the masters icons of foam um, Matt, Matt's the lead shaper, the owner, designer at Bing Surfboards. And, um, you know, my congratulations go out to Matt and to his wife, Margaret, who is expecting their expecting child. My question to you, which legendary shaper should the boardroom honor next year? Mm. That, I think, needs to be decided probably next year. Um, no, you have to tell me right now, dude. <laughs> Rack that brain of yours. Um, Which legendary shaper would David Lee Scales like to see well, being honored? Let me ask I you. I know it's, it is putting you on the spot. Yeah, yeah. Let me ask you this. Um, prior, uh, prior shows, is it always a longboard uh, design type shaper no, that people no, are? No, who no. are some of the past people? We've done Simon Anderson okay. with the Trifin. We did MR with the Twin Fin. Okay. Um, we did Bill Castor with the channel bottom single fin you know we've done um, Carl Ekstrom where we all did a bunch of asymmetricals that's right that's right yeah. I remember that so no it's more about who's deserving okay yeah yeah what about Jerry Lopez definitely on the short list okay. for sure and I've spoken with Jerry and he's into it and um, it's just a matter of sort of marrying up our schedules Jerry Lopez would be one um and that's a design that like I don't know anybody really still wants to ride you know, as, okay. a, as opposed to like Terry Martins or something yeah. where you could still, sh you know, have a good time on that thing. The Jerry Lopez thing, I think it, but it's so iconic and it's so um, synonymous with the 70s and the North, the North Shore in the 70s. You know what I mean? They just go together. Yeah. So I think that'd be cool. Yeah. I think Jerry Lopez is um, certainly uh, more than qualified and somebody that we've 
uh, explored for yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, I um, leading up to the boardroom show, I did a bit of research on Terry Martin, um, and I think he was a great choice, and was really astounded by the amount of reverence that everybody has for him and the amount of work that he's done, the sheer volume of boards that he's produced. 80,000 is the number that people always say. Um, and he started working at Hobie in the 50s and really put out 10 boards a day basically for his whole career up until you know the last year. So um, that's astounding. Yeah, that is. You bring up that number, 80,000. And there's a guy who um, it is widely known. Uh, I don't know if it's um, if people contest this or not, but it's widely sort of like, um, you know, what's the word I want to use? Um, it's, I guess, commonplace within the surfing industry that there's a guy who's shaped over 100,000 surfboards all by hand. And he's sort of the guy who owns the record, if you will. Um, for the most hand-shaped surfboards in his career. He's retired now, and that guy is Phil Becker hmm. of uh, Becker Surfboards in the South Bay in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm sure there's some that will say, hey, no way, man, and that's yeah. fine too. Please let me know. You know, I'm sure that you know, someone could argue that there's more, but Phil Becker was one of those production guys that you know, pounded out eight boards a day, five days a week for 30 years or whatever it is, right. and you, know, you do the math. Wow, crazy. Yeah. Um, one of the shapers who is... Um, contributing in that tribute to Terry Martin was Mickey Munoz, yeah, which I thought was a cool, cool guy to have. Um, Leyland, the reporter from the Leyland Connolly, the reporter from the OC Register, was interviewing him, and afterwards she was telling me he's the brother. He yeah. and Terry are brother-in-laws, yeah. which I had no idea about. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Yeah, cool stuff. Yeah. Huh? yeah, I had never heard that before. Yeah, so really cool. Yeah, we had a good time. Well, look, that about wraps it up. That's all I've got for you um, as far as topics and stuff. Um, your email address? Hello at surfsplendorpodcast.com. And, of course, I'm surftalksandiego at gmail.com. And uh, you can check out my website, downthelineradio.com, and David's website, surfsplendorpodcast.com. And then on social media, it's at surfsplendor. There you go. And um, I don't think I've got anything else. No, but you want to get together. Um, a couple of quick notes about the Portugal contest. They've only run round one at the time that we're recording this. Kelly Slater and Mick Fanning are relegated to round two. They're basically the guys who are vying for the world title at this point. I'll give you a quick rundown, if that's all right, sure. on the, on the um, potential world title scenarios. If Fanning wins this event in Portugal, Slater will have to get third or better to take the decision to Hawaii. Uh, Smith, Jordy Smith, Taj Burrow, Joel Parkinson will be out of the race entirely if Fanning wins. If, vanishing, if Fanning finishes runner-up, Slater will need a ninth. Smith will need to win the event, and Burrow and Parker, Parkinson will be out of the race. And then if uh, Fanning finishes third, Slater will need a ninth. And the other guys um, will need to win it. And then if Fanning finishes fifth or worst, no matter what the other guys do, the title goes to Hawaii. So Kelly and Mick are both in round two. If Mick loses, then the race, the title race goes to Hawaii. If Fanning gets fifth or better, then all those scenarios are in play. So um, it's exciting. I think he drew Francisco Alves, which is a wild card, in round two. And then Slater drew another wild card in Frederico Morai or Moraes or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, 
So that's gonna be danger zone and the, the swell is dropping. It looks like we're gonna have a number of lay days. They'll probably pick up the contest on Monday or Tuesday of next week. But again, probably not a lot of swell at that point either. So if it's two feet, it's a dangerous, two feet and inconsistent with a world title on the line. Super dangerous. Sounds like a wave pool. <laughs> yeah, I wish it was as consistent as a wave pool. So All that's right. exciting, but we'll do a recap show at that point. Yes, for sure. So yeah. yeah, we'll be more, hopefully we'll be more on point with a weekly show, um, if it makes sense. Well, Surf Splendor podcast is every other Monday, and then we're filtering in these shows in addition to. Cool. So, yeah. All right. Well, thanks, David. And thanks for listening, everyone. I appreciate it. Uh, aloha and adios. Thanks again for listening, everybody. We'll be back on Monday with the Robert August profile interview. So check that out. You can find us at surfsplendorpodcast.com or on social media at surfsplendor. Make sure to click the subscribe button on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you download podcasts to ensure that all future episodes are automatically downloaded to your device. Um, And then lastly, share the show with a friend. That's the best way to grow the show, just organically with fans of surfing and fans of storytelling, fans of podcasts. So um, thanks again. I'll see you on Monday. Cheers.